trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program dedicated to, well, thinking while it's still legal. And I only am halfway tongue-in-cheek saying that. I mean, seriously. (laughs) It's not getting easier to speak your mind or think out loud these days. Not that everybody needs to say exactly what they're thinking, but wow. Have you ever seen more uh, boundaries being erected and, and people policing whatever it is you're saying and thinking? And did you use the correct pronouns and so forth? All I'm saying is there's a lot of pressure on us, and I feel it too, but I'm glad you're part of the show. Look, I'm here not to tell you what to think, not to tell you how to feel, not to make sense of it all and solve your problems in 40 minutes or so. I can't do that. What I can do, though, and and what I try to do on a daily basis is share information with you that's thought-provoking. Sometimes it's a little bit outside of the box, and that's fine. There is no obligation, however, for you to believe what I'm telling you. The only reason I'm sharing it with you is to encourage you to think clearly, independently, even if that means you disagree with me, to just give it some serious thought for a few moments and don't take anything at face value, not from me, not from anybody else. We're in a really crazy place right now as far as this world goes. You probably noticed. And if you if you want to get bogged down in it, well, just, you know, open up a browser and start looking at the news headlines and you'll quickly catch on that, wow, there's a... There's a lot of stuff that seems like teetering right on the edge. Now, some of my listeners who are familiar with the whole fourth turning methodology of historical cycles, you know, you'll understand. This is what life in a fourth turning is like. And you can't live by the same rules in a fourth turning as you did in a third, a second, or a first turning. By the way, if you don't have a copy of Strauss and Howe's book, The Fourth Turning, it's it's really worth your time. But the bottom line is every 80 to 120 years, we go through a crisis. And it includes usually economic upheaval. It um, includes civic decay and breakdown of institutions. It often includes war. If I can just give you kind of a quick thumbnail sketch here. In the history of the United States, we've seen the fourth turning of the uh, American Revolution and the founding period. And then, you know, following that, there was a period of peace, almost like the seasons of the year. There was a springtime that followed, a summer that followed, a fall in which things were really unraveling and starting to come apart. And it culminated in another fourth turning, long about uh, 1860. Let's see, what happened in 1860? Oh, yes, yeah, the war between the states and, of course, Reconstruction. And again, another high point following that, as far as things were calm, it's springtime, summer's going, and, you know, the world moves on, and here came the 1920s, and then, boom, the stock market crash, World War II, fourth turning. So how long ago was that anyway? You wanna, Anybody want to take a shot at that? Yeah, I, we're right on schedule. No, I'm not trying to scare you. My goal here is not to, to leave you feeling nervous or anxious about things that Frankly, you and I really don't have a lot of control over, because we don't. But that awareness of what's going on and the understanding that this has happened before, this is a cycle that has played out before, 
can sometimes bring a little bit of peace and comfort to people who otherwise might just be, I don't know, tempted to run around with their arms over their, up in the air screaming, you know, ah, it's all, it's all coming apart. The biggest thing that you and I can do at this point in time, since we don't control the rotation of the earth and we don't control, you know, the direction history is taking us, is to make the kinds of decisions that improve the world where we're standing. In other words, being the the most excellent person, character-wise, physically, you know, taking care of yourself, spiritually, making sure that you're you're finding balance in your life and, and acknowledging there's more to this than simply, you know, we're here to live and buy toys until we die, right? The more you can do to be a really high-quality individual in your sphere of influence, the better off this turning is going to turn out. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to blow sunshine up your skirt here. I'm not trying to make you feel like, oh, well, then <laughs> I guess I can go back to sleep. Everything's cool. We're good, huh? No, it's this is a tough time. And frankly, you know, as, as much as it's, it's hard to say this, we're all going to be feeling the pain of this particular crisis cycle. We're feeling it now. And I think a lot of people are at the point where they don't want to acknowledge it. It just makes them anxious. What are we going to do? What can we do? But if you can maintain the perspective of this has happened before, people have made good choices, and sometimes they've made not so good choices. You know, it's, but, but the way this, this turning shakes out is going to depend largely on what kind of individuals you and I choose to be. That's something we do have control over, no matter what's going on around us. So... I hope to give you some encouragement there. I'm going to I'm going to talk about some stuff today that yes, it's admittedly kind of heavy. But also I'm going to share some stuff with you that I hope will be useful and and provide you with some of the tools to cope, you know, with with the things that we can't change and to boldly step forward and make the kinds of changes and exert the kind of influence we should be able to inf- to exert where we can. Deal? You still with me? Okay, let's let's dive right in. Sometimes it's really easy to get frustrated with a lack of objective reporting coming out of a lot of our legacy media sources. I mean, there was a time when I used to yell at the television. That's back when I was first awakening and realizing these uh, so-and-sos are lying to me, <laughs> or at least they're, they're twisting the truth or omitting certain things to try to lead me in a direction when I know there's more to this story. And I've reached the point now where it's like, okay, it's opposition. And, and you're always going to find opposition. And frankly, it's kind of what has inspired me to do what I do, which is to, you know, to push back against, you know, the misinformation and the deception and the manipulation taking place and encourage people, you know, really think about this for yourself. Well, I've got a great article here from Thomas L. Knapp about journalism and objectivity and neutrality aren't the same thing. It's kind of a neat reminder here, too. He says, with the possible exception of, actually, he has a quote here from Hunter S. Thompson. Wrote this back in 1973. With the possible exception of things like box scores, race results, and stock market tabulations, Hunter S. Thompson said there is no such thing as objective journalism. The phrase itself is a pompous contradiction in terms. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says, Someone forgot to tell George Washington law professor Jonathan Turley, who bemoans the rise of advocacy journalism, which he himself prominently practices, 
in general, and what he characterizes as Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin's call to abandon the foundational principle of impartiality in journalism specifically. Knapp says, like many, Turley seems to long for a return to some golden age of journalism where journalists merely provided facts in a neutral manner, giving readers the necessary evidence to reach their own conclusions instead of inserting their own biases and opinions into the matter. But he says there are two major problems with Turley's desire. One is that the existence of such a golden age is pure myth. The idea of objectivity in journalism is largely a product of Walter Lippmann's 20th century call for a detachment he himself didn't practice as a journalist. In reaction to a previous era, indeed the entire previous history of journalism, in which reporters wore their biases on their sleeves and their readers chose the newspapers most compatible with their own biases. The objectivity of the post-Lippmann press didn't consist of eliminating bias. It consisted of smothering bias under a bland gravy of pretended neutrality. By the way, that is a beautiful turn of phrase. I think that is just masterful. Which brings us to the second problem. Neutrality and objectivity are different and moreover completely incompatible things. Objectivity is about discerning reality as it actually is or at least attempting to do so. Neutrality is about not taking sides on issues. So an example of the two approaches, he says, let's take the subject of anthropogenic global warming. Earth is or is not warming. It is warming or not for particular reasons, including possibly human activity. And there are or are not specific consequences. Now, a truly objective journalist would work hard to find out and tell us whether or not Earth is warming for what particular reasons it is or isn't warming and what the consequences of its warming or non-warming are or aren't. A truly neutral journalist would neither hold nor express any opinion on what ought or ought not be done about the answers to those questions. So objectivity doesn't forbid us to form opinions. In fact, it usually requires us to do so. Trying to keep one's opinions out of one's communications is both unrealistic and counterproductive. Rubin says we should burn down the Republican Party. Turley says we shouldn't. Either or neither of them may have reached their positions objectively. But neither of them owes us a pretense of neutrality, and both enrich us by showing their work. Kudos to Thomas L. Knapp. I've got a link in the show notes here. You can check it out for yourself. You can also go to thegarrisoncenter.org. I'm going to take a real quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. By the way, give a shout to my sponsors. I've got them listed on my own webpage. That's at thebrianhydeshow.com. Back in just a second. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Just a quick shout out to my sponsors, hslammo.com, monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and garagedoorproservices.com. In fact, let me take a moment here to just talk about garagedoorproservices.com. This is a local company to southwestern Utah, meaning they serve St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. And this is the this is the company I would point you toward if you need a say an insulated garage door or maybe you just need some installation service or repair on your garage door. These are the ones you want to talk to. 
You can call them at 435-525-2773. Go online to garagedoorproservices.com and let them take care of you. All right, let's take a moment to talk about arguing with strangers online. I'm not encouraging you to do so, by the way. I think it's it's pretty much a huge waste of time. But occasionally, you do have the opportunity to engage with people online. And if you can do so without it becoming kind of a digital furball, well, you're doing better than most. I mean, I, I try to limit the amount of time I spend online. But at the same time, a good portion of what I do is combing through you know, all the catacombs of the online world, trying to find gleaming nuggets of truth that I can share with you. Sometimes you have to wade through some pretty dark places, and sometimes you see just toxic, toxic conversations taking place. And I'm not very proud to tell you that there was a time when I really was was happy to be a part of that. I loved to argue with strangers online just for the thrill of the battle. I'm not bragging, but I was pretty good at it, and and I'm actually kind of ashamed of that. Because in, in retrospect... It was a huge waste of time. I don't think I convinced anybody. I don't think I argued anybody into changing their point of view or, for that matter, even just considering, well, maybe he has a point here. Now, what changed for me was when I started reading the writings of a guy by the name of Paul Rosenberg. And there was a particular article of his about how to speak to the brainwashed. And, you know, he's, he's not being derogatory when he says this because we're all brainwashed to some degree. And that's the first thing he recommends is you got to understand all of us have been misled by misinformation. All of us are trying to slog our way out of the swamp of misinformation. So if you're going to try to persuade people, you've got to be able to speak the truth with love, like real love, not fake love. Okay, dear. Just speak the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. Don't worry so much about trying to convince people, but above all, lose the need to win. Now, having said that, I've got a great article here from uh, Patrick Carroll from the Foundation for Economic Education. Seven ways to improve your online debates. So if you're going to engage people on, you know, topics online, and it's, it's not to say that you're a bad person if you do, but if you're going to do it, try to do it in a productive way. Because as he points out, comment wars can be incredibly toxic, but they don't have to be. Patrick Carroll says, look, we've all been there. You post something online you find interesting, maybe an article you came across or a new idea that you had. Someone responds in the comment section, and before you know it, you're neck deep in a good old-fashioned comment war. Straw men are mercilessly, mercilessly burned at the stake. Ad hominems are mass-produced faster than they can be called out. Increasingly uh, creative pejoratives are, are flying everywhere. It's an absolute mess. And sooner or later, someone inevitably makes a Hitler comparison, proving for the umpteenth time the validity of Godwin's law which asserts that as online discussions grow longer, the probability that someone will make a Hitler comparison in the course of the discussion approaches 100%. Now, he says, the fierceness of these battles, the often ugly results, have understandably turned many people off from online debates altogether. Not only do these debates foster misunderstanding and chaos, but they can even lead to broken friendships and long-held grudges. However, some remain hopeful by at least entering the fray they can convince others to change their mind or at least to consider a new perspective. So for those hopeful few, he says the good news is that online, deb online debates need not be nasty. By following a few simple guidelines, we can avoid much of the toxicity that's become so commonplace in these discussions and move toward healthier dialogues. So without further ado, here are seven things you can do 
to improve the quality of online debates. Number one, he says, be precise in your speech. One of the most common pitfalls in online debates is a lack of clarity. Debates are often similar to a game of broken telephone. First, you have an idea and you have to translate that idea into words. No body language, no facial expressions, no tone of voice, just words. And then the other person has to read those words and understand what they mean, assuming proficiency in reading comprehension or reading compression rather is a, a mistake. Then they have to understand what you mean by those words. So is it any wonder that we struggle to understand each other? <clears throat> what he's saying here is hold yourself to high standards of clarity and precision. Say what you mean as plainly as you can. No idioms, no assumptions, no subtext. And if you notice somebody else is being unclear, ask them if they could explain what they mean or give you an example so that you can understand them better. Number two, avoid debating semantics. Something that often happens in online debates is someone will make a statement and then a commenter will take issue with how one of the words is used rather than the substance of the argument. Then the ensuing debate becomes a debate over the meaning of words rather than over the actual argument those words are supposed to represent. So to give a classic example, many online discussions about economics are framed in terms of capitalism versus socialism. Oftentimes, these discussions turn into debates about the proper definition of the words capitalism and socialism, not discussions over the respective economic systems themselves. And these semantic debates are often fruitless. Patrick Carroll says, my advice is to either steer the conversation toward more substantive topics or just avoid engaging. I like this one, too. Number three, talk about ideas, not people. One of the unfortunate things about politics, he says, is that it often takes debates about ideas and turns them into debates about people. Suddenly, it's not an argument about free trade. It's an argument about Trump or Biden. As with debates about semantics... Debates about people are largely fruitless and often cause more problems than they solve. You spend time asking questions like, what did this politician really believe? And what's the right way to think about this topic? Number four, avoid, don't just avoid straw manning, actively steel man your opponent. What he's talking about here is have the courage to try to restate your opponent's case stronger than they are stating it. In other words, state their case so clearly that they would be like, yes, yes, exactly. Now, that doesn't mean that you changed your mind, but it does mean you're listening to them. And once they think, well, look, this is someone who's trying to actually understand what I'm saying, they're going to be a lot more open of, to, to listening to what you have to say as well. And it makes your rebuttal a lot more convincing, too, if you happen to pull it off. Number five, don't feed the trolls. Now, this is really solid advice. Trolling is a post where the reaction is the content. And that's what trolls do. They want to get the reaction out of you. If you deny them the reaction, guess what they do? They just fade back into obscurity. So Carol's advice here is don't feed the trolls, period. Don't respond. Don't engage. There's nothing of value to get from that conversation. You know, pretty early on in a conversation, you can usually tell when someone's engaging you in good faith. And if they're not, then it's time to move on. Number six, he says, be succinct. I'll keep this short. <laughs> See, that's how it works. Brevity is respectful of the other person's time and attention, but it also forces you and me to clarify what we're trying to say. To really understand it, to pare away all the unnecessary stuff, strip the emotional language away, and get to the heart of the matter. And finally, number seven. Be open-minded. 
See, going into a debate, we are understandably focused on how to change the other person's mind, but Patrick Carroll says, if you want a healthy dialogue, we need to be willing to change our own mind. Now, maybe we'll persuade the other person, but uh, perhaps if we're open to it, we ourselves will be persuaded. And that can be a really difficult thing. I mean, look, when someone is stating a case to you or they're trying to make the, their, their argument, I know most of us, myself included, are mentally kind of rehearsing. Okay, how am I going to rebut this? Even as they're, you know, giving us their best take. If we can tamp down that urge to start building the argument immediately when they open their mouth and think about what they're saying and, in fact, uh, seek clarifying questions and not be so concerned with changing their mind, you'd be surprised what you can learn from someone else, even someone that you deeply disagree with. Got a link to the article in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. This is very solid advice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We have less than a week. In fact, we have much less than a week to go in National Preparedness Month. And since these are kind of crazy times, I don't know if National Preparedness Month has ever made more sense than right now. Why am I telling you this? Well, because lifesavingfood.com is one of my sponsors. There's a link in my show notes. If you'll click on it, you can see for yourself. You have a lot of options to uh, to bolster your self-sufficiency and to give yourself more options than people who just kind of sit back and let the current carry them wherever. Makes a lot of sense, right? Take advantage of it. It's not like everything's going to change just because, you know, National Preparedness Month is over. But if you've been looking for an excuse, you know, to, to act on it, here's a good excuse. Oh, by the way, the 30% savings you could have on, on select items, click on the website link and find out for yourself what they are. I think you'll find that it might be a really good time to make your move. You know, the growing lust for control over other people isn't just a problem that stems from the political left. I know, right now, the political left has captured most of the major institutions of society, the media, academia, a large, par- a large part of uh, business. Uh, it's, it's there. Even a lot of the churches. It's, it's really something. Politics, yep, they're dominating it right now. But as Max Borders explains, the great authoritarian arms race that's going on requires all of us to call out authoritarianism from wherever it's originating. And sometimes that's not just the left. He says, there's a quote floating around variously attributed to Lenin and to Marx that enjoins authoritarians to accuse your enemies of doing what you're doing. Now, whether this was the work of Lenin or a fortune cookie writer in Akron, it doesn't matter. Powerful authorities are actively employing such tactics. When President Biden gave his now famous Dark Brandon speech against a blood red backdrop that authorities could have cribbed from a Lenny Reifen style film, it revealed as much about the machinations of the powerful as the depravity of their strategists. Up to this point, the authoritarians were slowly boiling us lowly frogs. Now the the Politburo just turned up the heat. Click, click, goes the burner. Well, there's a sinister brilliance in calling for unity while at the same time referring to half of the country as fascists. There's a glorious perversity in the psyop of calling voters extremists while directing the state apparatus, that extraordinary fusion of corporate and state power, to censor speech and harass your political enemies. But the true genius lies in whipping half the country into such a frenzy 
that they're just willing to let the apparatus put the $150 million under thumb. After all, they're just troglodytes. They are the other. And it's all being carried out in the name of <clears throat> protecting democracy. Max Borders says the stage was already being set in 2021 when the Department of Homeland Security released an advisory memo warning that domestic violent extremists, DVEs, including anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists, will continue to pose a significant threat to our homeland. Speaking of anti-government, anti-authority extremists, one of the American founders wrote that the Tree of Liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Now, does it matter that today's anti-authoritarians are often peaceful people who want to express their skepticism of state power in a tweet? To the DVE advisory, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas added, The DHS has renewed its commitment to work with our partners across every level of government, the private sector, and local communities to combat all forms of terrorism and targeted violence. So, DHS didn't conscript a Stasi, Volunteers have lined up to work with them. Nina, hide a little lie, Jankowitz had just been another fangirl of the apparatus before she was recruited to head up the uh, Ministry of Truth, that disinformation board which was and may still be a thing. Let's not forget the FBI raids, uh, the homes of voters that they don't like, and works with social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter to silence dissent and brand dissenters as extremists. Click, click, goes the burner. So when it comes to branding half of America extremists and fascists, Team Blue is positively credulous, sometimes frothing. That means they care as much about Red Team or Team Red's rights as they do about those of the Uyghurs in China. Indeed, the uh, administration's latest efforts reveal more steps towards sinoforming America up to and including a CBC, CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, a monetary panopticon, that will roll out under the watchwords, the innocent have nothing to fear. He says those afraid of creeping authoritarianism coming from the left might be inclined to look to the right for electoral salvation, but he says increasingly you will find that the other side will be motivated more by revenge than by the protection of any principles or American ideals. You know what that means? That means Team Red is more likely to seize the apparatus and turn it right back on Team Blue. Far from decrying such moves out of principle, Team Red will bask in all the schadenfreude. That is, until the pendulum swings back. Now, Max Border says the current configuration creates incentives for reprisals likely to swing back and forth until the apparatus breaks down. And that could mean a civil war that pulls most of what's currently the indifferent center into picking a team. So the nation finds itself pulled into a game-theoretical construction that's unlikely to lead anywhere good or healthy. It's an arms race to see who can be more authoritarian. The cleverest in the Beltway will try to tell you otherwise, even those whose work you might have long admired because they've decided that the evidence demands that you pick a team. Here's a tweet from Jonathan Rausch. Could we please retire the both-sidest trope that both parties are captured by their radicals? Here's more evidence that the country has one extreme party, not two. I'm retired. He says, I'm, uh, this is uh, Max Borders speaking here. He says, I'm reminded of the old Nolan chart, which, although not a perfect typology of politics, is still more accurate than a spectrum that goes from left to right. David Nolan added another axis, libertarian to authoritarian, that was designed to add another important dimension to the political landscape. I try to describe it to you, but it's best you click on the article and just see it for yourself. But unfortunately, he says, the incentives in culture are like centers of gravity pulling people down. 
That is, progressives, moderates, and conservatives are becoming more and more authoritarian. Historically, red shirts and brown shirts hated each other, but both had their feet planted on a lot of common ground. It's not even clear that these groups are conscious of the process. It's more that animus can turn people into what they claim to loathe. And that's certainly happening today. Each side defines itself against its enemy and imagines it's on the side of the angels. They think of their tactics as a necessary evil, so stepwise, embrace evil. Click, click, goes the burner. Partisan intellectuals on either team will wag their fingers and warn us of both sides-sidism as if there was some cosmic scoreboard of authoritarian that, authoritarianism that only they are privy to. Some even call themselves libertarian, but notice how they scratch themselves having lain down with dogs. They are selective in their outrage. They join in on the finger-pointing in Tukoka. They pick a team. Now he says on a personal note, I'm fully aware of the impulse to tolerate the growth of authoritarian power rooted in fear and animus. After 9-11, I failed to heed the warnings about what kind of surveillance state measures such as the Patriot Act and later the spinning up of the new Department of Homeland Security would mean for American civil liberties. And he says, I was wrong. In hindsight, I can see that I'd been overcome by fear and polarization. I had picked a team. Click, click, went the burner. Since that time, subsequent administrations and legislatures have built on these measures to create what is now collectively known as the deep state. And I'd been a cheerleader for its rise despite everything I knew about mission creep and march through the institutions. Now the deep state has turned its capabilities onto ordinary citizens. He says, I understand that a, rare, a few rare events have caused us to all raise our concerns about extremist violence against innocents, from church and synagogue killings to clashes between protesters resulting in deaths. So to some degree, we accept that police powers must be applied to deal with such threats. But... We must remain vigilant, for any police power that can be turned on violent extremists can be turned on those labeled violent extremists. And even though rare but scary things happen from time to time, including mass shootings and protests that burn out of control, many of these events flow as much from ideological polarization and this illiberal arms race as from any evils endemic to ordinary Americans. So he says it would be a grave mistake to let partisans pull the rest of us into something like the following. It is the state which educates its citizens in civic virtue, which gives them a consciousness of their mission and welds them into unity. A state run by whom? For whose idea of virtue? For what mission? And unity wielded by what means? And yet both sides seem to have accepted Mussolini's words implicitly, implicitly rather, as they struggle to seize power. Max, Max Borders says, look, writing in reason, Stephanie Slade warns us that what has changed may not, and, and what may even be getting worse, is the problem of effective polarization. She says partisan animosity suits the authoritarian elements on the left and right just fine. Their goal is power. They have little patience for procedural niceties that interfere with its exercise. As history teaches, a base whipped up into fear and fury is ready to accept almost anything to ensure its own survival, perhaps even the destruction of the institutions and the ideals that make America distinctively itself. Now he says she's right, and she has the data. So if you accuse her of both sides-ism, he says, well, you can count on the fact your head is where the sun don't shine. But the bottom line is we call out authoritarianism anywhere it rears its head, on the left, on the right, even in the center. And we do everything in our power to innovate so there are exits from this conflict machine. Click, click, goes the burner. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would encourage you to do so. You can just go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Give me your email address. You'll see the place to do it right at the bottom of my daily show notes. And here's what I'll do with that. First of all, I will never give, sell, or even lend your email address to anybody else. It ain't none of their business. It's something that uh, I will hang on to. But each day that I do the show, I will send you my show notes, which consist of a collection of articles that I found that I think have relevance to what's going on around us and may offer some uh, insight as well as some empowering advice of ways that you and I might deal with things. I've also added a new feature, which uh, I will also send out to you. This is no charge to you. It's a, it's a daily feature that I'm currently doing on some different radio stations uh, called Nowhere to, or I'm sorry, that's a different program. I have Nowhere to Hide. I have uh, Hide in Plain Sight. This is just a little two-minute feature in which I uh, take a very non-political topic and uh, and just expound on it very, very briefly. It's it's designed to, to help give you something on which to hang your hat that doesn't require you to, you know, put on your battle gear and go forward to contend. Just something to provide a little food for thought. Anyway, you can look for it on my website. Very happy to, to bring that to you. And uh, let's see. Let's start with this. i got two stories I want to share with you. This one is from AmericanGreatness.com, AmGreatness.com. This is from Matt Keener. Meme them, mock them. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and start conflict, but I am going to encourage you when you find yourself frustrated with some of the things that are going on. Humor is a wonderful way to push back against the situation. Case in point, Babylon B. I don't think there is a more effective media outlet out there for calling out the hypocrisy of those in power. Now, right now, the left kind of has the upper hand, so they seem to be, you know, the target of it. But their, their, uh, their satire, the Babylon B satire, is not limited to just the political left. They'll call out the Republicans, too, and the political right when they are, you know, getting a little bit uh, froggy. But the bottom line is, a leftist ideology might rule the classrooms, the campuses, cable news, and social media censorship. But, as we've seen with the migrant crisis in Martha's Vineyard, the left has no monopoly on humor. And humor is a very effective tool in taking the wind out of the sails of those people who are trying so hard to dominate us. The Babylon Bee, easily one of the funniest and also most informative sources you can find out there. And they never come across as, you know, frothing, you know, Alex Jones, rawr, you know, just they, but uh, there's some really keen um, and pointed humor that helps make the point. So Matt Keener says, right now, some bespectacled Hollywood hack is feverishly working on a script, undoubtedly one for which he'll be grossly overcompensated about the Martha's Vineyard miracle. It's based on a true story of how millionaire country club housewives escaped the late summer monotony of cocktails by the pool to help 50 cruelly displaced migrants find their piece of the American dream somewhere else. (laughs) Now, keep in mind, the women are supposed to be the heroes of the movie. Matt Keener says one should not stereotype people, I know, but watching Martha's Vineyard's homeless shelter coordinator, Lisa Belcastro, speak to an inquisitive press was too perfect. 
especially as she told reporters, at some point in time, they have to move from here to somewhere else. Now, they would be the 50 mostly Venezuelans sent to the island by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in an effort to share the load and perhaps to prove the point that our current border policies are untenable. Belcastro said, we cannot, we do not have the services to take care of 50 immigrants, and we certainly don't have the housing. We are in a housing crisis as we are on the island, and we can't house everyone who lives here and works here, so we don't have housing for 50 more people. Now, Belcastro's brutal honesty, her lack of awareness given her job title, the nature of what American southern border states experience daily, make her an easy target for mockery. And the memes highlighting the resident's hypocrisy are a treasure trove of comedy. Faced with the consequences of the very policies most of them voted for, the good-hearted liberals of Martha's Vineyard called the National Guard. There was the scene from Forrest Gump reimagined with Forrest, the migrants, trying to find a seat on the bus. Martha's Vineyard. Seats taken, the students, or Martha Vineyard's residents, exclaim. Or the Homer Simpson meme where he disappears into the bushes, only this time he's holding an In This House We Believe No Human Is Illegal sign, only to reemerge holding a sign reading No Trespassing, You're On Camera. He says, my personal favorite was the uh, cartoon meme of the, fa- the man fake drowning. It's the recurring image of a man with his face barely poking out of the water, only when you zoom out, he's not drowning at all. He's sitting on the bottom of a very shallow pool. If only he would stand up, he'd be fine. For the Martha's Vineyard version, the pool is massive and in the backyard of a mansion and captioned, we don't have the space. (laughs) What fantastic comic relief radical liberal policies like open borders and no human is illegal provides when coupled with real world application of having these illegal aliens arrive unexpected and obviously unvetted in their own towns. It might seem odd to make too much of memes, but they are a devastating weapon in modern political warfare and apparently they are the left's kryptonite. So he goes into, you know, the the idea of memes and what they can do, why the left fears memes and so forth. So he says most people, you know, are, are pretty wound tightly these days because of all the things about politics. But he says the left hasn't cornered the market on humor. It hasn't cornered the market on memes. So the answer then is to naturally meme them. Meme them, mock them, highlight their utter hypocrisy. Not only do they deserve it, but he's saying it proves effective. Satire and irreverence are legal for now. And by the way, I do fully expect that the same kind of vigor with which we see crackdowns on misinformation, we're going to start seeing this applied to memes. Your post violates our community standards or our our rules of terms of service. Sorry, that's it. You know, just because you injected humor into something that's clearly not humor, humor, humorous. Speaking of humorless, that perfectly describes the woke who are basically just, you know, seething cauldrons of outrage looking for someone to go spill themselves on. Laughter cuts it down to size. And if you can learn to laugh at yourself in the process, all the better because it makes it easier to, uh, to laugh off and shrug off the left's criticisms when you do point out their hypocrisy. You understand? I'm not telling you, go be cruel to people. But I am saying, don't hesitate to tell them, lighten up, Francis, as Sergeant Holka would tell them. All right, one final note here. I'm going to encourage you, click on my show notes to check out J.B. Shirk's latest article on AmericanThinker.com. I really like his take on so many things, and, and with the change in the air, man, I stepped outside this morning. It's getting cold. 
fall is officially here. I'm starting to see the leaves change, a few leaves coming off. And and J.B. Shirk says, autumn's here, the brisk mornings have returned, the midterms are fast approaching, electric change saturates the air. At a granular level, he says, so much in America is terribly wrong. Inflation, crime, unprotected borders, censorship, political persecution, language codes, and other leftist lunacies grip the nation. But from a broader perspective, something is right. And here's what it is. More and more people in the United States and throughout the West are finally waking up to the sinister machinations of our globalist power brokers and the many miseries they've brought. For, for so many decades, totalitarianism has spread incrementally across formerly free Western nations. And most citizens were either asleep at the switch or too comfortable to be bothered. What's wrong with outlawing speech that's hateful? I mean, who could possibly be for hate? What's wrong with letting private bankers manipulate the value of national currencies? They, only, they do so only to prevent runaway inflation from ruining the economy. What's wrong with legislatures spending more money than they have? They can always print more banknotes, tax more incomes, leverage the properties, properties rather of ever more distant generations far from being born. What's wrong with endless wars against amorphous concepts like terror? Wars against nameless terror could never mutate into military campaigns against domestic citizens. What's wrong with disarming civilian populations while arming all powerful central governments to the hilt? In democracies, after all, authoritarianism is not allowed. Trust your leaders to do what's best or to do what's right, and everything will be okay. Believe without hesitation or doubt whatever the government tells you. And disregard all opposing, opposing viewpoints, rather, as dangerous lies. Report your fellow citizens who think too freely. And no matter what, obey the authorities for your own good. People are catching on to this. And here's the kicker. Here's what he's getting at. When stuff like this happens, it not only pushes us into some very uncomfortable space, but it also opens the door for people to step up and do the right thing. In fact, he says, remember, no matter how dark it gets, all it takes is one hero to push back. Heroes, after all, are not remembered for following the crowd. They emerge because they run in the opposite direction, often into known danger, and spur others to stop, turn around, and act. It's always the lone voice that inspires a people to rise up against the injustices of any age. It's the stubborn persistence of the few who marshal real change. It's the resolute among us who peer at the raging inferno without fear. It's the wise who remember that every waterfall begins with just one drop of rain. And it is the hopeful who can look around at today's chaos and clearly see the opportunity for great change. This is your call to become a hero. This is The Brian Hyde Show.